Please join me in opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the privilege of knowing that you hear us and you provide for us what we could not provide for ourselves. Thank you for your word. Help us to worship you as we try to understand your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. To prepare ourselves for our study of Romans chapter 2, I would like to remind you of two parables in the scriptures and one courtroom-like setting. We'll start with that setting that seems very much like a courtroom. In that setting, Amos presents charges against the Gentile nations surrounding the land of Israel. And he uses a formula like this. For three transgressions of, name that city, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment of that people. And then he goes on to list the charges against them. This happens about all the nations surrounding Israel. He starts with Damascus. And he follows their charges with charges against Gaza, followed by charges against Tyre, then Edom, then Ammon, and then Moab. The people of Israel were likely delighted by God's just judgment on these sinful people. The sinfulness of these nations would have impacted greatly Israel's life. But Amos continued his formula, including the southern kingdom of Judah. And I would submit to you that there were probably mixed emotions among the people of Israel as they heard this proclamation of judgment against their fellow uh, Jewish people the people of Judah, the reason it would be mixed emotion is the two elements of that nation were at odds. Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel, and Judah, the southern two tribes of Israel, were at odds. They were not in a peaceful relationship. And so there would have been some delight in hearing about the just judgment of God upon those wicked people down in the south. But the mixture of emotion is they felt a little uncomfortable because now the chosen people of God have come under the judging proclamation of God. And so there would have been some unrest and that unrest got a little worse because Amos did the the unimaginable when he goes on and says, for three sins of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. You know, it's all fine and good when judgment is out there. We're all happy when the Charles Masons, Mansons, excuse me, the Charles Mansons, the Timothy McVeighs, and the Sodom Husseins are judged. They face the world's judgment, and we're all pretty happy when. They're brought to justice. But when justice turns our way, maybe there might be some protesting from us. 
I'll remind you of another scene. You might remember it well. It's of a man, a prophet, named Nathan. And he went to bring a story to the man after God's own heart, David. You might remember these words. They'll be listed on the screens to my left and right. From 2 Samuel 12, Nathan said, The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, this parable, had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew and it grew up with him and with his children. This ewe lamb used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. Sounds disgusting, but that's the story. And it would lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Now you remember verse 7, don't you? Where Nathan essentially points his finger and says, You are the man. Oh, wait, 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 no. Um, what about mercy? What about pity? Don't, don't you care for my needs? Of course, God used Nathan's proclamation to David to bring about repentance of his sin. Of this we are all greatly um, rejoicing because that man of God uh, was restored into fellowship and was used by the Lord. Now let's consider one other parabolic element. This one comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 18. It's a familiar parable. It's one that I think we need to meditate on this morning to start and then really regularly. Luke 18 beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Those are very important words. The parable is outstanding. The parable is going to be wonderful. And we will be able to glean much from the parable. But we have to understand that opening line. The target of this parable are those that think well of themselves. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know how you hear the spiritual voice? Now, I don't know if he said it like that, but I think he did. Verse 13, But the tax collector 
standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus' parable is concluded this way, I tell you, this man went down to his house, what does it say? Justified. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It is very easy to look at the actions and attitudes of other people with a critical eye. It is particularly easy for those within a conservative, doctrinally driven church and environment to look outside of that environment and be judgmental toward the perspectives and practices of our culture. Now it is not to say that our assessment would be inaccurate when making those judgments. But our goal as the people of God is not to effect moralistic changes, but to offer eternal, God-wrought transformation. And this will only come through embracing the Gospel living in accordance with the Gospel, and faithfully proclaiming the Gospel. If our attention is on the evils of politics and the corruption of our society, there will be a tendency to feel good about ourselves in light of the depravity of our culture and our culture's variance from God's standards. Brothers and sisters, our hands are full dealing with our own sinfulness right here. God has called us salt and light. So, the life and the presence of those who walk in the power of the Spirit, those who are adherents to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, will make an impact on a world about us. And where we have opportunity to make an impact on issues that are harmful to others, we ought to act. But where that becomes our goal before dealing with ourselves, we are putting the cart before the horse and we are actually undermining and short-circuiting God's plan and purpose and power inside of us. Take a look with me back in the book of Romans now. Romans chapter 1. Lives transformed by the Gospel must be our goal. And that starts inside of our own lives. 
Lives transformed by the Gospel must be our goal. And that process starts within us. I would argue that the theme of this section that we are heading into, chapter 2 and following, is Paul's passion or eagerness to preach the righteousness-providing Gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like it was in chapter 1. As a way of provoking the church's understanding of this necessity that he's eager to preach the righteousness-providing Gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul declares the consequences of the Gospel's absence. In chapter 1 and verse 18, we're familiar with this because it really is a headliner for this section. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's telling us about God's wrath coming against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Not some of it, but all of it. Anyone who is ungodly, anyone who is unrighteous, anyone who performs unrighteous deeds and thinks ungodly thoughts, these are the targets of wrath. But you'll see that it starts with the word for. So this is not the beginning of a thought. This is a continuance of a thought. He told them in verse 13 he wanted to have gospel fruit among them. In verse 14, that he was under obligation to bring the gospel. In verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For who? Everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. By it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. In verses 19-32, through 32, Paul addresses a group that suppresses the truth by their unrighteousness. And this group outrightly rejects God's revelation of Himself. We've discussed it. As we get to chapter 2, from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul will address another group. Some will divide it into two groups. I think it's one. You can decide for yourself. This group does not outrightly reject God's revelation of Himself. However, they are still proven to be guilty. They, too, they also suppress the truth of God through their unrighteousness. Paul will provoke some understanding of their unrighteousness or guilt by discussing a coming judgment. Take a look please at our text. Verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Look at that guy. Look at that sin. Look at that culture. Look at this world. Look at this nation. Look at these people. Look at that guy. In judging, condemning them, you judge yourself because you, the judge, practice 
the very same things. Now he doesn't say, because you judged them, you're also receiving judgment. That is not what this passage says. It says, you condemning another, you judge, you're doing the same thing. So he's turning the gaze from out there to in here. The world is an easy target, isn't it? But those of us who embrace the truth about God, when we live similarly in thought, word, or deed, where is our excuse? And the answer is, there is no excuse. Paul's going to provoke a thought, a recognition, that even among people that are moral god fearing people that have the law among them, that even uh, subscribe to the law, that even try to orchestrate their lives in accordance with the law, and even teach other people the law, and even have the markings of the law on them, these people also need the Gospel. You need the Gospel. I need the Gospel. My children growing up in a Christian environment where the... The things of the Gospel are constant and things of the Lord are constant in our environment. They need the Gospel. Just because they grow up in that environment does not by itself uh, automatically produce Christianity. It cannot. Because they too are born dead in their trespasses and sins. They too. Like I was. And like you were. So Paul is going to bring about a call, a recognition that this wrath of God results in judgment and and who will be judged? Who will be judged? And what is the basis of this judgment? All with this overarching thing. This is why I want to preach the Gospel to you. This is why I need to preach the Gospel to you, to myself, and to a world that looks on. Because everyone is guilty before God. Not just you, not just them, but me. I need the gospel. And so, as we look at this section, we want to notice this. People will not be spared from judgment because they condemn others for their waywardness. In other words, we get up on this moral high ground and say, well, I am not involved in homosexuality, and I am not involved in sexual immorality. That is not my thing. That's their thing. They'll be judged. The way he opens up unrighteousness at the end of chapter 1 is not for like the, the ultra-sinner. It's for the every-sinner. And he talks about disobedience to parents. He talks about um, being uh, faithless. Faithless. You ever been there? Have you been there since coming to know Christ as your Savior? Where you doubted? Where you you didn't... Lord, how is this going to work out? I don't know how it's going to work out. And, And you struggle with your faith? Have you ever been heartless? Have you ever been haughty? Prideful? Boastful? He opens up a whole world of things that there's no one in this room can say, well, I've never done any of those things. You, you are without excuse, you who judge another. 
For you, while condemning them, condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice, practice, practice the same things. You do the same things. Secondly, people will not be spared from judgment because of their ethnicity. Look, beginning at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. People will not be spared from judgment because of their ethnicity. He moves forward in his argumentation and says people will not be spared from judgment because they possess the law. People will not be spared from judgment because they possess the law. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are justified before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. In other words, God has given them conscience, and their conscience tells them what's right and wrong. And when they live in accordance with that conscience, they're demonstrating that God's law isn't just a written code, but it is more than that. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, this is interesting, and their conflicting thoughts accuse yeah you did it again even sing songs about that yeah forget it and excuse themselves right so accuse ah it hurts or no i didn't no not me it's you it's you it's you O lord standing in the need of prayer she did it the woman you gave me she made me to do it oh no it's the serpent he did it Eh. It's been happening from the beginning. Guess what? Here we are. We're a fine people. 2020. And we're still blaming other people for our sin. Accusing or excusing ourselves. Verse 16. On that day when according to my Gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So people will not be spared from judgment because they possess the law. They'll be judged one way or the other. Next, people will not be spared from judgment because they teach others. This is a very interesting section. Not only are we students of the law, we are now teachers of the law. Of course, if I can teach the law, that will protect me from the judgment. Mm, Not so much. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, but you are in uh, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <laughs> he, he really is unloading on those that are self-righteous. Those that think, well, I, I, I'm, I, I think I'm going to make the, the mark. I think I'm going to make the measurement. I think I, I know the law well enough and I tell the law well enough. I even help other people toward the law. Of course, I will be okay. You know what the problem is in your sentence? Yeah, you said it. I, 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 I. The problem is that no flesh will glory in His presence. No flesh will glory in their flesh in His presence. Our boast is in God because of Christ. Because the Spirit has given us a, a worship a worship for the one true God. Through the Spirit coming into us, He leads us. All who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. He bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. And He cries out through us, Abba, Father! It's, this is all God's glorious working. And yet, the, the people that are being discussed in chapter 2 look down on others, look highly upon their ethnicity, Look highly at their possession of the law, their understanding of the law, their proclamation of the law, and yet they're just as filthy, just as wicked, just as guilty as anyone else. God's people all through the ages, those that are the chosen people of God, I'm talking about Israel, constantly headed toward idolatry, constantly headed toward sexual immorality, constantly robbing God of tithes and offerings. Read the book of Malachi. Constantly. Serving, worshiping other things other than God. But no, we're special, so we will avoid God's judgment. And this is what Paul's telling them. You will not avoid the judgment of God. You will not avoid the judgment of God because you condemn others. You will not avoid the judgment of God because you are a Jew. You will not avoid the judgment of God because you have the law or know the law or teach the law or am marked by the law in circumcision at the end of the passage. Not going to be spared from judgment because of these things. No flesh will glory in His presence. The glory belongs to Him. He will not share His glory with any other. His glory is His uniquely. So number five, people will not be spared from judgment because they have a physical marking of the body. Verse 25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, that's an interesting thing. We'll talk about those things next week.
Rather than being spared from judgment, what we have to understand that he's going to say, now we've talked about what he's saying, they're not spared from judgment. Now, what will the judgment be based on? Because he's going to tell us about this. People will be judged based upon the truth. People will be judged based upon the truth. Take a look at verse 2, please. Now, this is how my, my version reads. It says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Practice what things? The things you practice, verse 1. The judgment of God rightly falls. Now, that is not my favorite rendition. The New King James reads this way. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And the reason why I prefer that is not because it fits my argument, but because that's what it says in the Greek. The word rightly comes from two Greek terms, kata, that means according to, as a general rule, and aletheon, aletheon, which is truth, according to truth. The judgment of God falls according to truth. According to truth. So they turn that into rightly, which isn't really giving the sense of it in my estimation. The judgment of God is according to truth. So when I stand before the judge, when you stand before the judge, it's not going to be upon suppositions. It's not going to be upon what someone said you did, said you said. It's not going to be someone that's um, you know, throwing faulty charges at you. If you want to talk about the whole Satan thing, but that's, that's during in, in life. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's set that aside. We're talking about at the judgment seat, Satan's not there as the prosecutor. It's me and Jesus the judge. And the judgment will be based on truth. The truth. Well, let's think about this. Take a look with me, please, at Hebrews chapter 4. Now, this is a great section of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 4. The bracketing of Hebrews chapter 4 starts in chapter 3, ends at the end of chapter 4. It's talking about considering Jesus the high priest of your confession. At the end of it, he brackets it with, now we've seen Jesus go into the heavens. Uh, he, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now we can boldly come before the throne of God uh, to receive grace and help in time of need. We're talking about Jesus the high priest in this section. That's the, what, what governs the entire thing. Part of Jesus' high priestly um, ministry is that we can, we can come with uh, openness of face before Him. We can come with boldness. I don't have to fear in my coming to Him because I know that my sin has been dealt with. Uh, but right before He gets to that concluding section, He tells us uh, in chapter 4 and verse 12 about the Word of God. He says the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And so he talks about judgment right on the heels in connection with the fact that we have this living and transforming Word of God. We're judged in accordance with what God has revealed. Not the secret things, but what God has revealed. When I stand before the Lord, I will be judged in accordance to truth. That is a very important thing. Head back to Romans, please. Romans chapter 2. Not only will he, does He tell us that we're going to be judged according to truth, 
He also tells us that people will be judged based on their works. That's the subject of this text. The larger understanding of his argument in Romans chapter, this section of Romans, is gonna, he's going to continue some more information about this. But that doesn't mean that what he says here is not a valid and important thing that we have to understand. You see, we're gospel people, right? You're a gospel person. Most of us in here, we know the gospel. We know that because I have understood myself to be a sinner, I saw my sin, where it was headed, what it, what it, what it accomplished, what it didn't accomplish, and where the judgment that was on my head because of that sin, I turned from my sin, right? Repentance. And I turned to Jesus Christ for my salvation. My sin was forever removed. I, I will never deal with that sin because it's been dealt with. It was placed upon Christ. He became sin for me. So my sin is removed and Jesus' righteousness is added to my record. I have been justified. I've been declared righteous. This is all very wonderful and good. So when, when I look at myself, understanding justification, I don't fear this coming judgment because I know my records have been changed. I've been declared not just innocent. I've been declared righteous. But the judgment is still based on works. The question is, whose? Whose works? Brothers and sisters, let me just take a second. I try to be a good person. I try to be a good husband, and a good father, and a good friend. I try to be a good naval officer. I try to be good to people that I encounter. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a decent person. Like, I know what I am spiritually. Apart from the Lord, I'm, I'm horrible. But like, I try to be a good person. If I add all of my wonderful good things that I do to try to be a good husband and father and, and um, other things in my life, and I, and I put it in the pool and say, all right, Lord, judge me based on this, I have real problems. And I'm a, I'm a halfway decent human. Like, I strive toward doing things the right way. Not everyone does. So, you've got a halfway decent human, and they know that you bring your works to the table before the Lord, and it's going to be, you're having a bad, bad day, etc., What about the people that don't even care? The judgment is based on works. He's going to make that very, very clear in this passage. Look at verses 1-3. through Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. It rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He makes it very clear that this sample person in this diatribe is representative of a God-fearing moral person, whether Jew or Gentile, that this God-fearer is guilty of sin. They practice, practice, practice. Practice every day. That's what we do. God's judgment will come against sinful practices. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his, what does it say? Works. Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. This is true of every man, woman, woman, and child, regardless of race or creed. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearer of the law who uh, hearers of the law who are justified before God. You say the rest of that verse with me. But the doers of the law who will be justified. Do you believe that? 
You better believe it. That's God's Word. Now he's making an argument in this text to let you know, listen, if you want your works to be the basis of the judgment on that judgment day, you better do every last thing that God has said. If you want your works to be the basis of your justification, you had better obey from birth to death. The the law never takes a day off. They're better than Bill Belichick. No days off. Never. It never takes a day off. It's every day, all day, always demanding. Never satisfied. Never says, attaboy, did a great job. Take tomorrow off. You're all set. No. Have a long weekend. Go on on a Caribbean cruise. No. Never takes a day off. You want the law to be the basis of your justification? Good luck. To you. That's what Paul is saying. He's not using my same language. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Take a look at Revelation chapter 20, please. Beginning in verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne. Revelation 20:11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, what does it say? by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. This is just a reiteration. Each one of them according to what they had done. So just stop there for a second. He's very clear that there'll be a judgment in accordance with works. Do your deeds measure up is the idea. Then he lets us know of the ultimate element. Verse 14 and 15, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's a judgment according to works and there's a judgment according to who's in this book. What is the standard for entrance into heaven? In this passage, Revelation 20, it's is your name found written in the book or is it not? As you try to understand a little broader, more broadly, this concept, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were fastidious. They were, went to the nth degree to try to make sure that they followed the law. They made laws upon laws upon laws upon laws upon laws upon laws so they wouldn't violate the law. Except they did it all based on externals. Jesus broadened out the law and he said, 
If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you committed adultery. See, everything they did was all external. Jesus said, no, this goes right here. This is what he did to the rich young ruler, remember? Oh, you've kept all those commandments from, the, from your birth? That's, that's outstanding. I have a suggestion. Let's try it. Let's, I'm going to test just one thing. Okay? Here, here's the, the two things that, upon which all the law and the prophets hang. Ready? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's test, my friend, whether you really have followed the law. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. We're going to see if you actually love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And he went away sad. Oh, wait a second. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't keep all of the law. Maybe I don't quite make the mark. Later in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus said, You therefore must be, what does it say there? Perfect as your heavenly Father is what? Perfect. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 it says, But as He who called you is what? Holy. You also be holy in how much of your conduct? All. There's the standard. You want to make it to heaven, go be perfect. The standard for heaven is perfect righteousness. Paul, properly understood, is telling you just what I just told you. If you want to make it to heaven based upon you, you better not mess up at all. But he doesn't end the argument in chapter 2. He's going on in chapter 3 to say, all men, all people everywhere have sinned. This is why you need the Gospel. This is why I need the Gospel. It's not just them needing the Gospel. It's not just you needing the Gospel. I need the Gospel. This is Paul's point through this section. We're in desperate need of what only God can supply. Head back to Romans chapter 2, please. He's told them in verses 1-3 through that they practice, practice, practice sin. We're going to come to verse 4 in just a moment. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Storing up is the same word Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6 when He tells us to lay up heaven, uh, treasure in heaven. He says, By your deeds, you are storing up for yourself a treasure house of wrath. In verses 6-11, through 11, Paul contrasts two ways and two results. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his what works. To those who by practice and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, you're going to hold to every virtue, God will give you what you deserve, eternal life. He just told you, you can do this. You can't. Because that's not his, his, his overall argument is you can't do it. But he's, he's throwing out this possibility. Listen, you want to go the, the route of being a good person to get to heaven, hold to it fully and God will grant you eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, for them there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. 
but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Live righteously, receive eternal life. Sin, receive wrath. To what extent do we need to live righteously? Fully. But what is Paul trying to accomplish? Verse 1 of the same chapter, you have no excuse. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? What does he say? No! Not at all! For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Look down at verse 20. Ooh. See, you, you were thinking this verse when I was saying that you were going to be judged by your works. I know you were. I know you. You were thinking, not going to be judged by our works. Come on. Well, I'm reading what the Bible says. And now I'm going to read what you were thinking that the Bible says, and it does. Ready? Verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law can't do this. What the law does is it shows you your sin, and it causes you to recognize, I need to turn from my sin. I need a Savior. If you try to make the law do what the law can't do, you're going to find yourself condemned. The law cannot provide you with eternal life. It only provides you with condemnation. In verses 8 and 9 of this passage, he's piling up his argument. He already talked about wrath coming. Then he says, to, be, to this will be added wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. He is basically broadening his argument. All are sinners. All are unrighteous. All are subject to God's judgment. God is impartial. God's wrath is against all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Everyone is in this perilous situation. What do we do? Well, that's how he has framed all of this. He framed it with the solutions to the problem he is presenting in chapters 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. Because he started in chapter 1 and verse 13. Listen to what he says. Again, this is just reiterating what we already know. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, but uh, uh, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he tells us about all the unrighteousness of Gentiles, of pagans, of the moral God-fearer and of the Jewish people that adhere to the law, that, that, that follow the law to the best of their ability, that are marked by the law, that learned the law, that taught the law, and they're all under this same umbrella of unrighteousness. He ends this argument in chapter 3 and verse 21 and following. Take a look, please. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There's no distinction. Not Gentile, not Jew. All are saved only one way. Faith in Jesus Christ 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, that is a settlement, a settlement of God's righteous wrath against sin. God has put forth Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus then what becomes of our boasting it is excluded by what kind of law by the law of works no by the law of faith or is god the god of the jews only Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Same way. Same way. Faith. Right in the middle of this argument in chapter 2, look at verse 4. God's character calls us to repentance. Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, Paul states in verse 1 that we have no excuse. Then he asks two very important questions. Verse 3, Do you suppose... That you will escape judgment through, uh, though you practice unrighteousness? What's the answer? No. No. And then he asks another question. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience? You know, the word presume is translated seven times despise and one time disrespectful. Are you disrespecting God's character by assuming that just because He is a God of abundant, abounding in kindness, forbearance, and uh, kindness, forbearance, and patience, that He will overlook your unrighteousness, God is in fact kind. Verse four. But that kindness is intended to bring about repentance. Repentance. The word there is metanoia. It's really two dimensional. It's not just one-dimensional, it's two-dimensional. It's turning from and turning to. Turning from, turning to. I do this every Sunday. Turn from our sin, we turn to Jesus. Every Sunday, doing the same thing. It's like I'm a, a, a whirling dervish over here. Turn from our sin, and we turn to our Savior. Repentance. You could translate it conversion. This is what is needed. It's not strict adherence to the law because by the adherence of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. What we need is repentance. But repentance isn't just turning. It's repentance and faith. That's the two sides. Repentance and faith. Turning from and turning to. Turning away from my own resources and turning to God for His grace. This is what the apostles preached because this is what Jesus preached. Before him, John the Baptist preached. Listen to Paul's wording in Acts 19.4. Paul said, John 
baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Paul said this in Acts 20.21, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, instead of being repentant, these people are hard and unrepentant. Hard, stubborn, and impenitent, unrepenting. They're stubborn. They're stiff-necked people like uh, Stephen called them in Acts 7.51. So in verses 1-5, through Paul makes it clear that this group is unrighteous. They practice unrighteousness. Anyone going to dispute that? Verses 1-5, through they practice unrighteousness. They are unrighteous. In verses 6-11, through in addition to being unrighteous people, they suppress the truth. How do they suppress the truth? Well, look at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Well, back in chapter 1 and verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not only do those people in chapter 1 suppress the truth, the people in chapter 2 suppress the truth. You see, knowing about God is not equal to knowing God. Then verses 12-16, through 16, possession of the law does not prepare us for judgment. Only perfect obedience does. This leads us to two principles that are important. It's going to take just a moment. The righteousness providing gospel is for the moral God-fearer. And secondly, the righteousness providing gospel prepares us for the day of judgment. Let me read to you just some text from chapter 4 and we'll conclude. Verse 4 and uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Now to those who to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as what? Righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Look down at the end of the chapter, verse 20, verse 22. That is why his faith, speaking of Abraham, was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be, righteousness will be, counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, mercy, and raised for our justification, grace. God removes our sin and gives us righteousness. Instead of looking at the immorality of the world with a critical, judgmental eye, we need the compassion that comes from our God. They, like us, need transformation. And it's the transformation that only comes through the Gospel. When our focus is on the wickedness of the world, oftentimes we will see We will not see our own unrighteousness. And when we do not see our own unrighteousness, we will not be turning from our sinfulness toward our kind God. We will not be turning toward Him. In that scenario, we are the hard and impenitent ones who though we will never be condemned or separated from God, we will not be experiencing the transformation that comes through the Gospel. In order to fulfill our purpose which is offering the world around us the righteousness-transforming, life-giving gospel, we need to be being transformed by it ourselves. And so as we sing this last song and as we head out the door in a little while, 
How has God been working in your life this month? Do you see the handiwork of God revealing your sin instead of your wife's? Revealing your sin instead of your husband's? Revealing your sin instead of your kids? Revealing your sin instead of someone else in the church? Revealing your sin instead of your neighbor, your co-worker, the world at large? How is God showing you your sin and calling you toward repentance and transforming you through His Gospel? Because before we can make an impact there properly, the impact needs to be here first. Let's pray. Father, we need You. We desire Your work. We desire Your changing us. We want Your life to be seen in us. We want to make an impact on the world, but we want first to see You continuously impacting us. Help us to rejoice in the benefits we've received through Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.